Support for the Zest comes from People's Gas, delivering clean, efficient, and affordable natural gas for cooking at home with precise temperature control. More at floridasenergy.com. And of course, because they were more natives than Europeans at the first Thanksgiving, it may have been a gesture of cordiality to their guests that they served that alongside the venison and the other dishes. I'm Delia Colon, and this is The Zest. Citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and Southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. Today, move over stovetop stuffing and sweet potato casserole with the mini marshmallows. We're exploring what Florida's indigenous groups and early settlers actually ate for that first Thanksgiving and in everyday life. These days, it's widely recognized that the real first Thanksgiving took place in St. Augustine in 1565, a full half century before the Plymouth, Massachusetts event that you probably learned about in school. If you're still skeptical, just listen to our conversation from season one with historian Rodney Kite Powell of the Tampa Bay History Center. There's a link in the show notes. That first Thanksgiving banquet in Florida consisted of foods like venison, bean stew, and hard biscuits. And while corn and pumpkin had their place on the table, they hardly resembled the cornbread stuffing and pumpkin pie we feast on today. Although, to be honest, I'm a sweet potato pie girl myself. To learn how early Floridians used these and other dietary staples, I reached out to Andrew Batten. You may remember him from an earlier episode titled, How Florida Became the Birthplace of Fusion Cuisine. Again, there's a link in the show notes. Andrew is a board member for Florida Living History, which is an educational nonprofit based in St. Augustine. And he has a particular interest in Florida's culinary history. We deal with Florida's history from the very first European explorations in the 16th century up through statehood in 1845. And we cover all aspects of of history. But my particular area of interest has always been foodways and culinary history. So I look at the fusion of European, native, and African cuisines in Florida and how it influenced not only the way they ate then, but the way we eat now. I just love that. I mean, you need to write a book. (laughs) Really, really. Or you could be doing talks on cruise ships or something like that. I just think it's fascinating. So I want to talk first about squash. Mm -hmm. Um, I've recently been experimenting with squash. I've made some things with like acorn squash, spaghetti squash, butternut squash. There are so many wonderful squashes and they're so hearty. So when we talk about historic uses of squash in Florida, what exactly are we talking about? Well, we're looking at uh, the whole family. So including pumpkins, which would have been a, a major food group in the Southeast, which were eaten many different ways. Also dried. Dried pumpkin is an excellent sweetener and it will keep for a long time. So when you don't have access to honey or sugar or maple syrup or anything like that, you can use dried pumpkin. So that's an ingredient that both the European colonists used, but the natives used as well. And then pumpkin can be eaten almost any way. It was roasted, it was stuffed. Uh, The Spanish actually took that from the natives and would make a, a very rich stuffing, put it in the pumpkin, bake it, and then slice it like a pie. And so everyone would get some of the the meat of the pumpkin and then also the filling, whatever that was. 
Oh, that sounds good and very Thanksgiving-y. Yes. Are you, t- are you talking about like a similar bread-based stuffing like we would have today? It could be bread. It could be rice. Often it would include meat. Um, it might have, the Spanish might do it with onions and garlic, that sort of a thing. And then further north, the Europeans did it where it was, um, it seems to me almost like a meatloaf with, with breading stuffed into the pumpkin and then baked. So it's like a whole meal almost. Exactly. That's And that's just it. Then you just slice it like a pie and everyone gets a chunk. My mouth is starting to water already. <laughs> Tell me more about the dried pumpkin. Is it powdery? And what kind of things would they be sweetening with it? Well, I, just ran, I just ran out of sugar, so I may actually need uh-huh. to do this. <laughs> what you can do, you just slice it very thin, hang it up to dry, and then it can be used for many, many different things. It can be mixed in with other ingredients. So if you were cooking dried corn, what we would think of as grits, essentially, you could sweeten it with that. Uh, it was used to sweeten beverages. In the in the northern colonies, they would mix it with beer, molasses, and then a shot of rum and heat the whole thing up. So that's where pumpkin ale comes from today. Originally, pumpkin was used as a flavoring and a sweetener because you lacked anything else. You didn't have access to sugar, molasses, whatever it was. Pumpkin is cheap, grows outside your door, keep all winter long as long as it's kept dry. So a, a useful plant that way. Yeah, very useful. Just don't carve it here in Florida. I learned that the hard way. It'll keep for like three hours and then it'll start to get moldy. So is pumpkin and these squashes, are those native to the Americas? And is this something that the Europeans were introduced to when they came to the Americas? Exactly. So squash would have been something that they would have encountered here. Many different varieties, although at this point, it's a little bit hard to say exactly which ones. The pumpkins that they would have had, for example, are still grown in Mexico and are still sold in a lot of Latin American markets. They're called calabazas. They're large, but sort of flat. They're greenish more than orange. And that has the nice texture and the meaty texture for holding up while you bake it. And so we know that those would have been common all up and down the Eastern seaboard. As a matter of fact, one of the things probably served at the first Thanksgiving would have been what they would have called stewed pompions, which is where pumpkin came from, which they served as a side dish for meat. So they would actually boil them down and make almost a gravy out of the pumpkins. And the so Europeans did that, you're saying? The Europeans did that. Now, they probably learned that from the natives. And of course, because they were more natives than Europeans at the first Thanksgiving, it may have been a, a gesture of cordiality to their guests that they serve that alongside the venison and the other dishes. Ah, now, do you believe that the first Thanksgiving was in Florida? Well, yes, Uh, the the real first Thanksgiving was definitely uh, 1565. And what's interesting about that is that I, I actually cooked what they suspect is the first Thanksgiving meal for my family. I didn't serve it on Thanksgiving, though, because it's I like it, but it's very disappointing to uh, the, um, the typical American taste. It's a hearty bean stew and then served with guava jelly, hard biscuits and wine. So I enjoyed it, but not what most people would think of. I think I would actually enjoy that, too. I love a bean stew. Maybe if you dip the biscuit in the stew, it's not so hard. Probably what they did. Probably broke it up and then soaked it in the stew. Well, you and and I uh, could have Thanksgiving together. (laughs) Very good. Very good indeed. So you said, obviously, the natives were using all this stuff before the Europeans Mm -hmm. arrived on the scene. So what native populations are we talking about in Florida? And is there anything else they they did with these pumpkins and squashes that we haven't talked about yet? 
Florida had a number of, of tribes ranging north to south. What's ironic, of course, is the Seminoles, who everyone thinks of as Florida natives, are not Florida natives. They actually came down from Alabama and Georgia. They came into the vacuum left when the original native peoples of Florida were almost completely gone, either to assimilation, disease, or slavery. And so the original populations here um, in the northeastern part of the state, St. Augustine up to the Georgia border, for example, were the Tamuqua. Where I live on the coast down around Melbourne were the Ais. And they generally broke up their year living part of the year on the coast, part of the year inland, which was quite common for uh, natives all up and down the eastern seaboard. And so they would have um, a winter dwelling and a summer dwelling, depending on what was growing, what was available, because the time we're talking about um, was still part of the little ice age. So winters were definitely more severe in the Western Hemisphere than they are today. Um, up until about 1800, the climate was noticeably colder. I've experimented for years. I leave things growing in my garden to see how long they'll grow. Uh, and I have leeks that have been growing now for three years. They never died. The, it was never cold enough to kill them off. And so I can judge what might have been available in a more temperate Florida. My herbs never die, for example. So I have mint. I have basil. I have citrus trees that that go dormant in the winter, but they never die. So again, I can get an idea of what would realistically be available. So that when I do period cooking, I'm cooking with ingredients that would have been available to the people of the time at that time of year. It really makes it more interesting. You don't learn anything if you just go to Walmart and stock up on any ingredient you want. So if you see what they really would have had at a given time, it, it helps you understand the ebb and flow of, of the seasonal cuisine. And they say that's how we all should be eating, right? Exactly. Seasonally. So that's exactly. that's amazing. Now, I know you you also talked about African influences when enslaved mm -hmm. Africans sort of started mixing it up with the Europeans and the natives. So thinking of, yes. of squashes and pumpkins, what role did Africans bring to that cuisine? Or how did they use squashes and pumpkins? There were a lot of things that were brought over from Africa and introduced to the Americas. You have sweet potatoes coming from South America and you have yams coming from West Africa. They replace the roots largely that the natives had been eating for centuries because they're easier to grow. For example, the Florida natives ate the root of the Kunti plant, which grows all over Florida. It's, a, it's used as an ornamental bush now it produces a very starchy root, large, uh, looks like a wildly overgrown yam, but with white flesh. Uh, but it's toxic if it's not properly treated. And so it has to be blanched and drained and all of that. And then it produces a very, very starchy material. But once you get a sweet potato from South America or a yam from West Africa, it's the same kind of thing, but without the toxins. So you don't have to process it. And so very quickly, we see that being introduced into native cuisine. Archaeologists have found remains indicating that they adopted these plants from other places to replace what was so difficult in their own food processing. So you start to see things like melons being introduced. And I think that uh, a melon is close enough to a squash that it would not have been a big leap for natives 
to adopt things like melons, which again are coming from the Middle East or coming from Africa, being introduced into Florida native cuisine. So huh. I think the there are people replacing um, something they're familiar with with something that is similar enough that it's not a big leap. That's interesting. How do you spell the kunti plant? C-O-O-N-T-I-E. There used to be vast plantations of kunti. They grew it because the root is good for making starch for laundries. So in the 19th century, when everyone laundered and then starched their clothing, kunti was a, a, a rich source for this. Once that was no longer popular, they got rid of a lot of the kunti plants, which is too bad because there's a, an endangered butterfly in Florida that only lives on the kunti plant. And so the Atala butterfly needs it. And so people are now being encouraged to put it back into the landscape. But you'll see it all over. It's, it's drought resistant. It is heat resistant. It's cold resistant. It just grows and grows and grows. And if you dig it up, you get this giant gnarled tuber at the base of it, which is edible with proper preparation. I don't think I would want to try it regardless of how it was prepared. <laughs> but um, if you're hungry and you need a starch, there it is. I don't think I'm that hungry. It's no. also interesting that you said melons replaced a lot of those other starchy vegetables mm -hmm. because I will swap, you know, butternut squash for sweet potato for a yam kind of interchangeably. But I would never think I'm going to swap cantaloupe for butternut squash or for a yam. So what mm -hmm. were they what were they making? Well, I, they probably ate a lot of the melons fresh, is what we assume. Okay. Um, whether they cooked with them, I don't know. I don't see that listed anywhere. But then again, largely we only know about the use of melons through archaeological remains. They found the seeds um, in burial pits in Tamuqua archaeological sites. So we know they were growing them. What exactly they did with them, we don't know. Okay, switching gears, I want to ask you about corn because it seems mm -hmm. like it's such an important part of so many diets. Mm -hmm. So my first question is, you know, the corn that's in my fridge right now, mm -hmm. does that at all resemble the corn that native populations would have eaten thousands of years ago? Probably not. The best analogy is this time of the year, go to the store and look for Indian corn for display. That's probably the closest you're going to find. So it's not all nice uniform yellow. It's beautiful, but it's, it's got yellow, it's got red, it's got blue, it's got almost black, and very hard, very dry. It's not a sweet corn. It could be eaten fresh off the ear, but I don't think anyone would enjoy it because it's not sweet at all. It's very durable. It will last. And then it's prepared invariably by cooking. And so the almost universal way that the natives all across the Americas prepared it would have been grinding it and then almost certainly boiling it or stewing it, sometimes with meat added, sometimes by itself. And what's interesting is when you look around the world at populations of poor people, this is what they eat. My mother growing up ate grits. My friend's father who grew up in Sicily ate polenta. It's exactly the same thing, except the difference is you serve polenta in a fancy Italian restaurant and you're paying $9 for a dish of it or $12, <laughs> dish, which would have killed my mother on the spot because grits was cheap. So the only difference is what you put on top of it. My mother ate grits with a pinch of salt and some butter. My friend's father would have had marinara sauce on it, but it's the same thing. And it's what you see all up and down the East Coast of the Americas um, and well into the interior, anywhere 
that it would grow and it would simply be ground and then cooked with water and then spices. And then frequently they might add berries, they might add meat, make it a main dish, but it will keep all winter long. You simply literally can just bury it in the sand. So they would have large woven baskets, fill it with corn, put a, a, a mat over the top and then bury it in the sand dune. And in the spring, you could plant some of it, you could eat the rest of it. And so it, it keeps with absolutely no care whatsoever. So an ideal survival food, but not really anything like what we think of today. It also was different in size. Um, most of the southeastern ears of corn we think of would have been considerably smaller. But the Iroquois in the 18th century are noted by European explorers as growing ears of corn that are up to 18 inches long, so larger than our current corn. So whether it's a different strain, whether they had hybridized it, we don't know. But in the southeast, we assume that it probably would have been smaller ears, probably about two-thirds the size maybe of what we think of today, hard, dry, and not sweet at all. So when the Europeans and the Africans came, what, what did they do differently with the corn? I think they probably ate it very much the same way. The Spanish adopted corn very early and used it. And what you see spreading throughout uh, Spanish culture is something very similar to polenta. What's interesting is the Africans who escaped enslavement and made their way to Florida, many of them were men, and they very rapidly intermarried with Native women. So you have a biracial culture almost immediately with Native women cooking for African men. So the question we have, and one that's never been solved, is how quickly did the two food traditions blend? And I would assume immediately. You have Native women cooking with ingredients, some of which they're familiar with, some of which they're not. But I think that they would have brought their food ways into things almost immediately because you're not going to learn all new cooking just to please your husband when you have the same ingredients anyway. Oh, for sure. Yeah. My husband's Puerto Rican and I can cook some of the dishes. Some of them I'm like, we're just going to have to go to your relatives or get that at a restaurant. <laughs> Are there any other ingredients? We talked about squash. We talked about corn because those were the two that sort of came to the top of my mind. But are there any others that you think are just so critical when telling the story of Florida foodways? Well, you have all of the berries that exist in North America and that you find here. So you have, you have blueberries, blackberries, mulberries. Uh, you have local grapes. You have muscadine grapes. And so they have those. So a lot of things that we would be familiar with, there were cherries growing here, persimmons. Um, they used a lot of nuts. They used hickory nuts and acorns. And so they could eat them. Uh, if you blanch the acorn, you can then eat it plain. You can mix it with other dishes. It can be ground into flour. And so they were making bread out of acorn flour. You have things that are unique to Florida. So you have the parts of palm trees that are edible. So palm hearts, berries off the sable palm. So you have ingredients that are very specific to Florida. Really, you don't find anywhere else. But then you find things that, that are eaten everywhere. And so uh, so again, all of the berries, they ate dandelion leaves. They were, um, there was wild rice growing here. They used um, things that we don't think of anymore, dandelions, pigweed, but they're both edible, usable for salad greens. And so those would have been eaten, probably cooked is my guess. I don't know that they would have been served raw. They ate sunflower seeds. 
You have peas that grow wild here, different kinds of beans. One of the things that I find fascinating that my whole neighborhood is filled with Yapon holly trees. Mm -hmm. And they make a very, very potent caffeinated beverage out of Yapon leaves. Mm -hmm. And I have a friend whose family goes back in Florida for generations. And he said that they drank that up through the 1930s because it was affordable. During the Depression, you couldn't afford regular tea. You would just go out and pick Yapon holly. Now, the natives used it in a ceremonial religious drink called casina. They would brew it so strong that it would actually induce wild vomiting and hallucinations. So they used it as a purgative. But I've actually tried it, and it's good. It's, it's like very, very strong iced tea. You know, right. it's it's funny you say that because last season I interviewed um, two brothers in Central Florida and they have a company called Yapon Brothers mm. American Tea Company. Yes. And so it, they're they're bringing it back. Yes, I've used their product. I, yeah. I want to try it and see and uh, made a big picture of it. And everyone drank a small amount because <laughs> it goes a long way, but it was very tasty. I was very impressed. That's so interesting. OK, last question. And anything else you want to add, what are some resources for myself or just other people who want to learn more about this? Because it's so, this is my second time talking to you and it's so fascinating and I, I don't want to monopolize your time, but I want to know more. So, so where do you turn to learn all of this besides like doing the experiments in your backyard? <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, the, um, the National Park Service has done a lot of research on this. There's a National Park Service site just north of St. Augustine that is based on the Timucuan people. And so they've done a lot of archaeological digs there and resources. And so they have a, an excellent web page that gives you an idea of their diet, the animals that they ate, the, the, the vegetables, the seafood, all of the things. If you look up, I think it's Timucuan Reserve. The University of Florida has a good web page on Native American foods. A lot of it has been through my work at Fort Mose State Historic Site in St. Augustine, where the African men and the Native women married and then settled. And so a lot of it has been a learning experience for me, just trying to prepare dishes that are appropriate to this very interesting multicultural blending. Spanish ingredients, because the Timucuan people of Northeastern uh, Florida, very quickly took to things like garlic and sugarcane. They were the ones who enjoyed sweet potatoes and melons. So they're eating these native and South American, Central American, Spanish, North African, West African foods, all blending together. And um, part of that, I think, was exposure to the Spanish culture and the African culture in Northeastern Florida. And so you, within probably a generation you have this hybrid cuisine growing out of necessity. Florida was the poorest part of the Spanish Empire. For centuries, it was the poorest part of America. It wasn't until 1940 that Florida came out of last place in all states in America for poverty and also for the smallest population. So within the lifetime of many people still walking the earth today, Florida was the poorest place in America. So these foodways grew out of necessity and turned into something wonderful. I mean, there's nobody I know who doesn't enjoy the results of this fusion cuisine. But it starts from very modest sources. Uh, the, the people of the native Florida 
lived a hand-to-mouth existence. It was largely dependent on climate, but also on season and proximity. If there was something, a red tide came in and wiped out all the shellfish, your, your livelihood was in danger. If there was a drought and your squash didn't grow, you were in danger of starvation. So the native people were living on the edge, mixed with African people living on the edge, mixed with European people living on the edge. So they all had to very quickly put aside preferences uh, and accept reality. And they did. And that's one of the things that's so interesting about Florida is how quickly everyone learned to sample the other's cuisine. Uh, Somebody once said that an Englishman, anywhere he goes, wants to eat like an Englishman. Spanish weren't like that. The Spanish traveled all over the globe, and everywhere they went, they immediately found something that they loved and made it part of their own. But the exchange was two ways. So all of a sudden, the natives of Florida are being introduced to figs, which must have been a revelation. There's not much that grows in Florida until the Europeans arrive that's sweet. So all of a sudden, you're eating these these figs, which are rich and meaty and dense and delicious. You're eating sweet melons. Uh, sweeter than any pumpkin you've had, sweeter than any squash you've ever had. So it, it really must have been a revelation to them to experience these things. And then you've got garlic and sugar cane, which are enriching your cuisine as well. So the Spanish learned a great deal from the natives, and the natives learned a great deal in return. Well, that's such a good lesson for today, too. It is. Where Where does garlic come from? Because I can't imagine my life without it. Yes, well, it was um, grown... immense amounts of it were grown in uh, Spain. It was one of the first crops they planted in Florida. Onions and garlic were the first two commercial crops grown in Florida. Onions grow better in this soil, but garlic will grow if you don't let it get too wet, if you have nice, well-drained, sandy soil. So the Spanish brought that over with them. What's interesting is they grew so much of it that even after the Spanish had left large parts of the Southeast, for example, uh, they'd established settlements in Georgia and the Carolinas, which eventually were abandoned because of the expansion of the British. The British found fig trees and patches of wild garlic still growing generations later. And so they would go and harvest them from the site of where the Spanish used to live. So it enriched European cuisine, even here in the Americas. Well, I can't thank you enough. I just find this fascinating. And so I really appreciate your time. Once again, you are a treasure and I'm I'm seriously waiting for your book to come out. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Delightful to talk to you. Andrew Batten is a board member for Florida Living History. We've got more tales of what early Floridians ate, including the story of the Cuban sandwich and how Florida crackers drank an early version of bulletproof coffee. Who knew? Find it all on our website, thezestpodcast.com. I'm Delia Colon. I produce The Zest with Andrew Lucas. This week we had help from Chandler Balcom, Mark Hayes, and Lily Tyson. The Zest is a production of WUSF Public Media, copyright 2021.